Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Edward Slingerland, who is professor of philosophy at University of British Columbia up in uh, Vancouver, and also the author of multiple books, most recently, Drunk, How We Sip, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. Also, this one, Trying Not to Try, Ancient China, Modern Science, and the Power of Spontaneity. And then there's another book on what science can offer the humanities, which I don't have with me. And I feel like we should have done this later in the day, and I could have a glass of wine while we're Beer, yeah, we should be drinking. That'd be more appropriate, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Otherwise, we might be too stiff when we're, we're talking. Yeah. PFC is going to be too active throughout this conversation. But I have to say that these two books are probably two of the most interesting books that I've read in a really, really long time because they do combine insights from cognitive science and psychology, from philosophy, from religion. In fact, if I didn't know that you were a professor of philosophy, I, I would have trouble trying to figure out exactly what you were a professor of. Yeah, a lot of people wonder about that. And so perhaps we'll talk a bit about what the humanities and the sciences can offer each other. But I think maybe what we'll do is we'll, we'll just kind of do it. And we'll start off by talking about the most recent book, Drunk, which I, I see it as sort of a natural outgrowth of some of the themes that you talked about in trying not to try. But I think what you do is you look at the consumption of alcohol and you do like so many others do now. And you wonder, is this a natural thing? I mean, it seems to be so harmful. We see all the alcoholism. We see all the early deaths. We see the people crashing their cars. We see the domestic abuse and violence. And, and so many people are saying, hey, this is something we really need to get rid of. And we have a difficult time explaining it. So evolutionary biologists, they're always looking to either show that something enhances fitness or that if it doesn't enhance fitness, it's some kind of legacy. So there's a mismatch or, or something. And then there's others that say, well, you know, it might look like a mismatch, but it still makes some sense like an appendix. So is drinking something that is an inherent part of what it means to be human? Or is, is it something, either a mismatch or, or a hijack? And maybe we can dig into what those theories are and, and how you came to wonder what drinking is and how it fits into our nature as human beings. Right. The standard scientific story is our taste for alcohol is an evolutionary mistake. And within that general claim, there's two different types of subclaims. There's two different types of mistakes it could be. So one is I call it evolutionary hijack. And this is where a reward circuit is getting tapped into, even though the thing you're doing is not what the reward circuit is for. And so the classic example that I start the book with is masturbation, right? Evolution gives us the best thing it has at its disposal, the biggest carrot for the thing that most directly serves its interests, which is reproductive sex, which is passing on copies of itself to the next generation. And yet humans and other species have figured out that we can game the system and get the reward for not doing the thing we're supposed to do. So we engage in all sorts of non-reproductive sex. We get the orgasm anyway, even though we should really, right? It's like Diet Coke. Diet Coke doesn't even give you the calories, right? Yeah. There definitely are examples of hijacks. We're clever primates, and we figured out how to trigger that reward circuit, even though what we're doing is not what the circuit's for. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is a mismatch, as you said. So classic example of that is that I gave in the book is junk food. So this is, we have a taste, we get rewarded for eating fat and sugar and protein for a very good reason, because those were traditionally, you know, for most of our evolutionary history in really short supply. 
And so organisms that, when they came across them, would gorge on them, did better than ones that didn't. This only becomes a problem in the modern world, modern industrialized, rich world, where we have access to too many calories and we go down to the corner store and get Twinkies and Slim Jims and sugary cola drinks. So that's a classic mismatch. That's kind of like the drunken monkey, right? That sniffs out the ripe fruit. And sometimes if it's alcoholic, that means it's really ripe because the alcoholic vapors spread far and wide. It pays to be attuned to that and to kind of sniff it out. Yeah, Robert Dudley at UC Berkeley, right? That's his hypothesis. So that's a classic mismatch. So it was adaptive. The taste for alcohol led you to calories in our evolutionary environment. But now, when, as he puts it at one point in his book, The Drunken Monkey, now we can walk into a supermarket and have rows of wine. Now it's not adaptive. So that's classic mismatch. The problem with both of these, so in the case of masturbation, evolution doesn't care about fixing it because it works well enough. As long as you're also continuing to kind of seek after the real thing. Yeah, so apparently it works well enough. Somewhere in the, among all the masturbating and non-reproductive sex, we managed to have enough reproductive sex that we're here to talk about it. Masturbation's low cost. Its evolution doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to be good enough. In the case of junk food, that's more costly. And so it leads to serious health consequences, obesity, diabetes. But it's relatively recent problem. And even now, it's still geographically constrained. So there are plenty of parts of the world where getting enough calories is a problem for people still. We could imagine a world where if, in fact, diabetes has a significant fitness impact, that we will evolve a taste. Our taste for sugars will kind of be mitigated over time. You would imagine that because if given the cost, if it did become the case that everyone had access to lots and lots of sugar and it had fitness impacts, our taste for it should disappear there would be selective pressure against it. It's still in our gene pool because it's a relatively local and recent problem. Alcohol isn't like either one of those cases. It's really costly. Like the junk food, it's really costly, right? It's harmful physiologically. Worse than junk food, it leads to all sorts of behavioral problems of taking in excess, social problems, alcoholism. It's estimated that probably 15% of the human population is genetically prone to alcoholism. So these people cannot drink alcohol safely. And that's where a lot of the problem behavior comes from. So it's costly. It's also ancient and global rather than recent and local. So we've been producing and consuming alcohol for as long as we've been doing anything in an organized way as a species before. And this is what really, in doing the research for the book, one of the things that surprised me the most, I was told I'd kind of somehow absorbed this evolutionary mistake idea about intoxicants. It's just triggering a reward circuit. I'd also taken for granted the standard story about the origin of alcohol production, which is that it was also a mistake. So we had agriculture, we figured out how to grow grains, make bread, and then someone left their sourdough starter out for too long and it started to ferment and they tasted it and made them feel good. So they, they you know, we had beer and then what related to that was this idea that, oh, well, it's a way of preserving food, right? It's a way of yeah getting rid of contaminants and toxins, right, through um, sterilization, right? There's that argument. Oh, in the Middle Ages, you didn't have any clean water, so you had to drink beer for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The dirty water thing. Yeah, that's right. That theory drives me crazy. So those are two other mismatch theories, is the dirty water hypothesis. So we didn't have access to clean water, so we, we ferment contaminated water, it gets purified. The basic problem with that is... The other way to deal with contaminated water is to boil it. 
I mean, making beer is incredibly elaborate process. You've got to like malt mm-hmm. grain. There's like several steps. It takes a really long time. If dirty water is your problem, boil it. You don't need to understand the germ theory of disease to stumble upon boiling water. So it doesn't make sense. Cultures that drink only boiled water, like for a very long time, China, China, there's a kind of fairly strong taboo against drinking. They don't think of it as untreated water, but non-boiled water is considered bad for you. It hurts your stomach chi is the Chinese medical theory. We would say from a modern perspective, it's safer because it's been sterilized. So they drink only boiled water and tea, and yet they still have plenty of alcohol. So it also mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense. And also cultures that have alcoholic beverages of beers often also drink untreated water on the side. So it just doesn't, it just doesn't hold up. And the food preservation one is interesting. Certain fruits that are going to spoil if you ferment them and turn them into a wine, they'll last longer. Beer is not great. Beer before the hops actually didn't last for very long. You had to drink it pretty quickly. And things like chicha, the beer they make out of maize in South America, has to be drunk right away. But certainly once you get distillation, you can preserve calories for a really long time. But distillation is, again, one of the surprises of the book was distillation's relatively recent invention. We've known about it for a long time. Aristotle describes it. But it's technologically really difficult to pull off. You have to have metallurgy. You have to be able to control temperatures really precisely. It's, it's actually quite hard to do in practice. So we didn't have distilled liquors on a large scale in, in Europe until like 1700s, 1600s, 1700s. And if it's, you know, what we're interested in is food preservation, make a nice yogurt or a porridge. Have all the benefits. You get the same preservation, but you don't get a hangover. But you mentioned that there's never been a world-conquering civilization that was based on yogurt drinks. Porridge, yeah. And you don't sacrifice porridge to the ancestors or yogurt. You sacrifice alcohol because that's the center of both cultures. So it's not a mistake. All of these various mismatch theories, it's not impossible that they're playing some role. These are not mutually exclusive theories about alcohol. They could all be contributing something. One of the more interesting things about the nutrition theories is that if you ferment grain into beer, the action of the yeast adds a bunch of micro, really crucial micronutrients. And one of the theories is that, especially for poor laborers in early agricultural societies where suddenly they're kind of stuck living on starches almost exclusively, this is what allowed them to survive because they're not getting fresh vegetables, they're not getting fruit anymore because they're not hunter-gatherers anymore. But beer contains some of those micronutrients that you would get from vegetables and fruit. So that's interesting. But that can't be the whole story, especially because people are drinking beer, making and drinking beer thousands of years before we have agriculture. And so that's what surprised me the most doing the research is that this is so-called beer before bread hypothesis, that human beings were hunter-gatherers, were getting together, making beer constructing these monumental religious sites and having rituals. We don't know exactly what they were doing thousands of years before agriculture. And the argument then is that the motivation for settling down and actually starting to cultivate plants was not bread or nutrition. It was the psychoactive properties. People were motivated to become farmers so they could more efficiently get drunk. You know, it really turns on its head this idea of the relationship between agriculture for food and intoxication. Another reason why I should be suspicious of the mismatch theory that you highlight is that it's not just that 
it's super harmful in many ways to the individual human being. But you also mentioned that enormous resources are devoted to the production of alcohol, which could presumably be devoted to the manufacture of, of weapons or the production of nutritious foods or whatever. And so if you have a civilization that's devoting a huge amount of resources to this, and it was coming at the expense of this other stuff, one would think that those societies would kind of get wiped out. Yeah. It's estimated that in ancient Sumer, 50% of the grain production went to beer. So they're taking half of their nutritious grain and turning it into a low-dose neurotoxin. It just doesn't make sense. There's so many costs, just not physiologically, but also, as you point out, investment in the society in terms of labor, energy, and foodstuffs. And something's got to be going on to pay for it on the other side. You made me reflect on how much money I spend on alcohol. I, I went over my finances and it was, it was kind of shocking. Yeah. So one of the stats I cite in the book is that one, people spend report spending one third of what they spend on food on alcohol. That's a pretty big chunk of your income. And it's almost certainly an underreport because in large parts of the world, intoxicants are black market. So you don't really get accurate reports of that. And I look at my household, especially if you like decent wine, you know, you're spending a good chunk of your income on this thing. When you get into good wine, there are other factors going on, right? It's aesthetics. And then you could say, well, we spend my on art and nice furniture as opposed to cheaper furniture. But this has been going on for a really long time, long enough and with a high enough cost that there's got to be some benefits on the other side that are paying for it. So that was the motivation to write the book was just trying to uncover what the benefits are. It's related to trying not to try in a variety of ways, but it's also related to my previous work on the cognitive science and evolution of religion. And in some ways, Drunk is a similar project to what we did. We had a big interdisciplinary grant on the evolution of religion at UBC many years ago. And the basic question was the same. It was taking something that is universal and assumed. So you go to a new culture and they are worshiping invisible beings and sacrificing things to them and scarifying themselves and not eating certain delicious foods and engaging in long, boring, painful rituals. And then if they're a large-scale society, guaranteed the biggest, most impressive, and expensive building in their settlement is useless. It's a religious monument that has little or no practical purpose, right? You look at ancient China, my area of specialty, and first emperor of Qin's tomb, this massive underground terracotta army. I mean, they built a terracotta army of individual soldiers. They were all different from one another. They were armed with real weapons. They put the highest tech military stuff they had in there. They put in jade and bronze vessels, which are really incredibly difficult to make. They built essentially an entire city and fake army, and then they buried it. <laughs> That's it. No one could use it anymore. First, they killed a bunch of people and tossed them in there, then they buried it. And you just have to think that a society just like that one, but that invested in real soldiers and real stuff, like an irrigation network instead of this crazy tomb, would do better. And yet, it's not true. If we look at societies, the ones that go in for what seem like wasteful, costly rituals and investments of material seem to do better than ones that don't. And so religion is this kind of mystery. We see people doing it everywhere. It's costly. It seems to have no benefits. So what's going on? And so that project, we were arguing that religion actually probably does have some benefits, both the individual and group level that are paying for the cost. 
I see drunk as applying the same lens to chemical intoxicants. We take for granted, we see them everywhere, it doesn't surprise us. When we dig up ancient wineries and see people investing all this energy in growing crops that just get used to make neurotoxins, but we should be more confused or puzzled by that than we are. I look at it as kind of trying to look at these mysteries that are hiding in plain sight. They're things that we take for granted that humans do, that if we really start to think about it from an evolutionary perspective, it's really puzzling. Well, I mean, religion is something that's unique to humans, I guess, and so is really widespread alcohol consumption. But I think when people are thinking about what makes humans different from their primate relatives and from other animals in general, they don't really think about those things. They think about our rational capacities, right? They think about we're the only animal with a prefrontal cortex that is super active. If we take the cognitive science view of things and we think about our system one and system two, which is what I spend much of my time doing, right? Working with my students to try to cultivate their more rational side and to be hyper aware of how their less rational side is influencing their decisions. And we think that kind of the more highly developed our PFC is, the more human we are. I think you're saying that even though humans are naturally unnatural in this way, it comes at a cost and there's a trade-off there and that we lose something when we become more rational. Absolutely. That presumably was the inspiration for all of your work was really an understanding of this trade-off. Yeah, especially I think the reason I was able to see the trade-off maybe more clearly than if I had been trained in a different way is that my specialty is early Chinese philosophy. You know, this hyper-rationality is very much a product of enlightenment thought, right? And you can trace it back to Plato, but it's, it really takes off and becomes the dominant mode of philosophy in Northern Europe and the Enlightenment. And this emphasis on instrumental rationality and self-control, conscious decision-making. I remember very vividly the moment when I decided as a young person that I wasn't going to study Western philosophy. And it was this passage in Kant in the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals, where he's talking about this amiable person. So it's someone who is generous and kind, but they do it out of inclination rather than ausflicht, out of a sense of duty. And Kant says, well, that person, they're okay, but their actions are not moral. For an action to be moral, you have to stop. You have to think, is what I'm about to do in accordance with the categorical imperative? Yes, it is. PFC, engage. <laughs> I'm going to force myself to do this thing. That's moral behavior. It's conscious, it's willed, it's rational, it's rationally motivated. And inclination-based emotions or dispositions, we don't even talk about them in moral philosophy. And that just seemed so cross-backwards to me. It just seemed to me that, actually, I would trust the guy who's amiable rather than the guy who's thinking about the categorical imperative. And that I discovered, as I started to learn a little bit more about Chinese philosophy, is that was their view as well. So in early China, there's actually an interesting passage in Shunzi, one of these later warring state Confucians, where he's ranking moral agents. And it's basically the opposite of Kant's evaluation. So, well, he thinks the person who's not moral is the worst. And then above them is the person who isn't inclined to be moral, but they can think about ritual and what the Tao would say. And basically they're Kant's agent and they're okay. But the best agent, the sage, just spontaneously and naturally and unselfconsciously does the right thing in every situation. Spontaneity is valued and not rational top-down control. 
And I just think it much better fits folk intuitions about kind of who's a trustworthy moral agent. And I think better fits the way we really try to train our kids to be good. So I got very invested in the virtue ethics movement and philosophy, which was trying to bring back disposition-based, spontaneity-based views of ethical training, decision-making. So yeah, rationality is great. The PFC is super important. It's really expensive organ, and we wouldn't have it if it wasn't doing something really important. But it can get in the way. I think you're right that one way to look at a lot of my work is exploring the downsides to the PFC and the importance of the system one either innate system one systems or retrain. So for virtue ethicists like the Confucians, they don't want you to be spontaneous the way you are when you're a kid or even if you're an untrained agent. They want you to train. But the idea is by training, you reshape your system. You use system two to reshape system one so that it matches what system two thinks is desirable. But then you kind of toss system two overboard and you rely on these transformed dispositions. And that seems to be a more plausible, psychologically plausible model of how moral agents work. Right. So I guess when we're teaching students or, or children how to become better people, or even when we're trying to teach them how to be better at some skill, right? Like playing the piano or something like that, we generally are trying to have them use their system two to cultivate their system one, right? System one is, is a slow learning and system two can learn much more quickly. But if your yeah, if your system two is activated, it might actually get in the way of accomplishing what you're trying to achieve. You talk about that quite a bit. Yeah, and trying to try and look at the a lot of the choking literature. So the literature on expert performance and overthinking. And if you're a trained expert in a physical skill, so if you're a highly trained athlete, paying attention to your technique actually messes you up. So if you tell a professional baseball player to, as they're trying to hit the ball, think about the arc they're swinging the bat through, they won't be able to hit the ball anymore. And when, and that's the key to choking, right? When people, especially high-level athletes, are playing poorly. I played tennis at an amateur level and I'm trying to get better. But I think tennis is a great example of this because it's a sport that you cannot do properly unless you're relaxing certain muscles while simultaneously tightening other muscles. And there are several things like a, a serve, a proper serve, and a forehand that you really can't do if you're not relaxed. And when you look at high-level tennis players, they all are super conditioned. They've been playing since they were kids. They've internalized all of these moves. When they start to play poorly, it's because they're overthinking things. And it's at the highest level of tennis competition. It's all about the mind. It's all about whether or not you can be in the zone or not. And it seems to be that mental toughness that allows you to stay relaxed in the zone is what separates successful professional athletes from others. I'm trying to point out that this is not a problem just for athletes. It's a problem for performers. So people who worry about this a lot are also actors and comedians who know that if I go out there and try to be funny, it's going to really suck. And if people aren't laughing and I start to try harder to be funny, it's going to get even worse. So those are the communities who have always known about this. And they have their own folklore about kind of how you get into it and how you avoid choking. But also, I don't think we recognize in our daily lives, this is the problem, right? You want to go on a podcast and have a good conversation with your host. You got to be relaxed at some level. If you're not, you're going to be stiff and awkward. 
you're on a first date with someone and you want to impress them, you impress them by not trying to impress them, right? You impress them by just being yourself and being confident and relaxed. But, you know, how do you make yourself relax? If you know that being spontaneous is going to allow you to do better, how do you make yourself be spontaneous? That's the central paradox of trying not to try the theme of that first trade book. And the seed for drunk came from me thinking about the fact that the early Chinese give you all these techniques to get around the paradox. And I argue it's a genuine paradox because when you're trying to relax, the part of the brain you're activating, the PFC, is actually the part you're trying to shut down. It's like saying to someone, don't think of a white bear. They will think of a white bear because you've just activated that concept in their brains. So the Chinese have all these strategies for trying to get you around it indirectly meditation or ritual practice or do this thing and try not to think, worry about it too much. But it occurred to me at one point that alcohol might be a technology that cultures have stumbled upon to get you around the paradox of trying not to try. Because what you can do with alcohol is just take a substance that will reach in directly to your brain, turn the PFC down a few notches. So it gets you around the paradox because you're not trying to use the PFC to shut the PFC down. You're using your elbow to shut your PFC down. So that's one of the direct lines between my first project and Drunk as well, is this kind of alcohol as a cultural technology for solving this paradox. Well, it's like when you tell someone, just relax. Come on, just yeah. relax. Right? It doesn't yes. work. Yeah, it doesn't work. I remember when I first started teaching, I was always very nervous and wanted to impress and make sure I had all the answers. And I had this slide deck that had all the words and things that I was hoping to get across. And it was only after I started relaxing and not caring quite as much <laughs> that I was yeah. able to pull it off. But I think that people also, when they're observing a performer, they appreciate the performer more so if they think that what they're doing is in some way improvised or spontaneous, right? So if you listen to a, a jazz soloist, if you find out that, well, you know, that's the same exact solo that that person has done yeah. 50 times, then you lose a bit of, of respect for that performer. You feel like it's less genuine. You feel it's more rehearsed. One of the reasons why I was always afraid to use the same joke in multiple sections of the same class was that yeah. <laughs> I said they'd compare notes and they'd find out. <laughs> you know, they'd, I'd get in trouble. Yeah. So I don't lecture as much anymore. I tend to do more flipped classroom stuff so that I'm not just giving the same lecture over and over. But when I did give the same lectures, teach the same class, I would sometimes use the same joke. The key to it was having it seem funny and like it just came to me each time. And there is a way to do that. Like actors can do that, right? They can seem grief stricken and it really seems like it's happening to them in the moment. So one of the other themes in trying to try was this connection between spontaneity and trust and liking. So kind of affiliation. We like people who seem relaxed and like they're not trying too hard. And the question is why? And so for the Chinese, it's a theological explanation. So they think that when you're in a state of wu-wei, this state of effortless action, you're in harmony with the Tao, with the way the universe is. And heaven, this Tian, this supreme being, is pleased with you and gives you this power. And the power is called, in modern Mandarin, unfortunately, but I translate it as like charisma or charismatic power. And that's what makes people attracted to you. And if you're a Confucian ruler, it's what makes people want to come serve you, even though you don't make them. And if you're a Taoist, it's what allows you to kind of move among people without being harmed and also relax other people. 
And so they have a theological explanation. So I was trying to come up with, how can we explain this naturalistically? And this required a deep dive. This is always where I lose popular audiences when I was doing the book tour, was explaining the evolutionary dynamics going on here, because it really has to do with game theory and cooperation theory. So we constantly faced cooperation dilemmas, especially large-scale societies, that go by different names and are sometimes slightly different in structure, but are fundamentally the same. So prisoner's dilemma, tragedy of the commons, these situations where the best outcome for everyone is if we trust each other and cooperate. If we can do that, each of us individually will also do better. But we're vulnerable to defection, as economists would say, right? We're vulnerable to people who aren't going to cooperate. If they defect on us, we're going to be in big trouble, worse off than if we were selfish. And so the only rational strategy in that case is to be selfish. But human beings aren't selfish. We actually solve prisoners' dilemmas all the time in daily life. And I was really influenced by Robert. Do you know Robert Frank's work, Cornell? Yeah, I, I interviewed him. He was one of my earliest podcasts. Oh, great. Okay. I was really inspired by his passions within reason. So his argument is emotions are a solution to this cooperation problem. So if I love you, you're my friend and I'm loyal to you. Or we are part of the same gang and we are honorable gangsters and we, we observe the rules and we respect our group. That binds us in certain ways. I think Frank uses the analogy of when Ulysses ties himself to the mast so that when he, they sail by the sirens, he doesn't jump in. His previous self is binding his future self. And we do that when we emotionally commit to another person. We're deliberately restricting our future behavior in order to allow cooperation to work. So that's the solution to this problem. But it creates another problem, which is evolution never rests. And so now there's going to be an incentive to be able to fake those emotions, right? If I can make you feel like I'm a loyal friend, even though I'm not, that's even better because I get all the payoffs of friendship. But then when it's time to move your couch, my van's in the shop and I can't help you, <laughs> right? I'm a defector. But that's going to then create pressure on people to get better at detecting faking. And so you're going to predict a kind of evolutionary arms race between cheaters and cheater detectors. And it's interesting because evolutionary arms races are often what's going on when you see extreme traits in species. So cheetahs and gazelles, are, they're stupidly fast. Like There's no need for an organism. They're wastefully fast. But they're trapped in this arms race where they have to keep going because if you're a gazelle, you have to keep being faster than the cheetah. I think this has happened with humans in our theory of mind and our ability to detect emotions in others. Compared to chimpanzees, I have a supernaturally good ability. I'm not particularly good at mind reading or face reading, but I can tell if you're bored. I can tell if you want to move on. I can tell if you don't like me in an instant, right? It would seem magical to a chimpanzee that we can do this, but it's because we've developed this ability to read tiny little micro-expressions. And Frank walks through, he relies a lot on Ekman's work on emotional expressions, kind of walks through some of the cues we're using. And so that explains why we like signs of spontaneity, is that when we see someone acting in a way that seems spontaneous, we assume they're not engaging their PFC, and therefore they're not being rationally self-interested. They're not thinking strategically. I mean, economists... In the ultimatum game, if it's a single shot, they tend to accept very, very low offers, which means that they'll do better than someone who rejects those low offers. But hey, if you know you're playing with an economist, it's 
wonderful. Right? Yeah. Economists are the only people who behave rationally in the ultimatum game are economists and analytic philosophers. This is no one else does. And why not? Because you get angry, right? So ultimatum games, one of the examples I use of how emotions are useful, right? I got this example from Frank, actually, because he's talking about being taken advantage of in an economic exchange. A rational agent's going to get just abused. So economists out in the wild are just going to get screwed over constantly because <laughs> everyone knows hey. that they're rational patsies. Whereas the person you're not going to mess with is the hot wire person who's you give them an unfair offer, they're going to get pissed off and break your leg. You're going to tend to give them a fairer offer. So that's why we trust people who are spontaneous. There's this concern about cheating. So one of the functions of alcohol is to help out with this arms race. So cultures are not uninterested bystanders. They want the cheater detectors to do better. They want us to be able to solve prisoners' dilemmas. And so one of the ways they can do that is by coming up with a technology that will basically help the cheetah be faster and slow down the gazelle. Alcohol is one of the ways we do that. So the cheating is very PFC heavy. If I'm faking it, like if I'm pretending to be someone I'm not, if I'm lying to you, that's cognitively really demanding task. I've got to hold in my head both what's really the case and what I'm telling you the case is. I've got to suppress leakage, emotional expression leakage that reflects reality instead of what I'm telling you is the truth. It's really cognitively taxing to lie. Use some alcohol, turn the PSC down a few notches, it's harder to lie. People are less successful liars. The other interesting thing that was less intuitive is that there's evidence that we're better lie detectors when we're a little drunk. Mm -hmm. The PFC is actually the enemy with lie detection because we think our system too knows how to detect lies, but it doesn't. We read mm -hmm. some Sherlock Holmes novel and we learned some stupid trick about when people are lying. It doesn't actually work. You're better at detecting lying. Maybe that's why all that training that the TSA got from Ekman's program, it didn't work because the TSA folks weren't drunk. They couldn't pick up on those micro expressions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, the best way to pick up on the micro expression seems to be to relax mm -hmm. and just take in a wide bandwidth of information and let your system one sort it out and tell you there's something shady about this guy. But if you're relying on system two, a list checklist of stuff, you're not going to do very well. So this is why I argue this is why in all cultures throughout history, whenever you get a bunch of potentially hostile people who need to come together and trust each other, move on with their quarrel, nobody starts talking until everyone's drunk. You shake hands to show you're not carrying a weapon. You do a few shots with somebody. It's like taking your PFC out and putting mm -hmm. it on the table and saying, I'm, I'm cognitively disarmed. The things I'm saying now, you can trust. Mm -hmm. They're not calculated. I read a fascinating story about how the African National Congress approached the National Party prior to the release of Nelson Mandela from prison. And the thing that really accelerated that peace process was where the, the military leaders on both sides all went out drinking heavily in the bush and forged these relationships. Very human sort of thing. And I guess it's why in so many cultures, particularly Chinese culture, there's just so much ceremonial drinking around business and, and in Japan as well. And so this is kind of a substitute for, say, courts. It's a substitute for contracts. It's a substitute for these more formalized arm's length ways of building partnerships. I mean, there must be some feedback loop, right, where the Chinese or Eastern conception 
a positive understanding of, of humans and the positive description of humans in the West, where we're believed to be strategic and believed to be utilitarian in that way, have led to these different kind of ways of enforcing agreements? Could the causation flow both ways, right? We have the courts. And so since we have the courts, we don't really need the drinking and we don't need to promote it or protect it or enshrine it in our business relationships. That's an interesting point. I guess I would dispute the claim that we don't need it anymore. But I think you're right that there's relative prevalence and you're going to have a hydraulic relationship between rule of law and then informal mechanisms like religion, because religion is a big one too, right? I swear before the gods, I make a costly sacrifice to show you that I'm really a believer. That's another way you can trust going in non-contract environments, non-institution-based environments. But yeah, I hadn't thought about that, that maybe because even in the modern world, a lot of Chinese economic relations, business relations are through guanxi networks, right? Through connections and personal connections, that they would rely more on the drinking than we do in the West. But it's still the case that no contract covers everything. Right. And so if it's a relatively simple thing, like I'm contracting you to deliver me some paper clips. I'm going to download an app on my phone. I don't need to have a drink with the, the company that makes it. Yeah, it probably is okay. But if I'm engaged in a really long-term complex undertaking with you where there's lots of lead, there's always leeway, right? That's when I'm going to get on a plane and fly to Shanghai and get drunk with you before I sign the contract. And so my argument in the book is, you know, when Skype was invented, everyone was like, oh, well, business travel is going to stop because why would you fly to Shanghai if you could just Skype with people or email them? Well, people still flew to Shanghai and it's because... Even with contracts. And I think you're right that to the degree to which contracts are enforced and comprehensive, it probably does drive out the need a bit for the drinking and the informal stuff. But it doesn't completely eliminate it because there is so much wiggle room even in the best constructed contract. People still want to know they can trust the people they're doing business with. It still is important for, I also talk in the book about this, the big grant we got for the evolution of religion was this interdisciplinary grant, and it was a partnership grant. The point of the grant was to bring together different universities and different disciplines to work on a common problem together. But a lot of these groups were competitors in a way, like they were working on similar problems from different perspectives and didn't like each other or thought the other person's approach was wrong. So I got this $3 million grant. And we were going to start having these meetings where we were going to try to get everyone to work together. But I wasn't allowed by SHRC, our federal granting agency, mm -hmm. doesn't allow you to use grant money on alcohol. And I was like, we cannot do this without alcohol. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's no way you're going to get these people to cooperate. And so we actually put together a black fund among ourselves to just use for reimbursing ourselves for the alcohol part of the meals. Because you want to get potentially hostile people or people who just are not fully on board with working together to relax, to let their guard down. You need something. There are other ways to do it. You could have had some ayahuasca or some uh, psilocybin. <laughs> yeah, the problem is those really knock you out, right? There's a reason alcohol is used because it's relatively short-lasting. It doesn't disconnect you from reality that much. But there are non-chemical, well, it's all chemical, right? There are non-chemical ingestible drug ways to do this. Some companies have replaced the annual office party with heavy drinking with laser tag outings or rock climbing. And 
it's probable that that's doing some of the same stuff. So with extreme exercise or getting absorbed in some kind of game, you can get some of that same downregulation of the PFC effect. So there are other ways to do it. It just, alcohol's really efficient and pleasurable way to do it. Well, there seems to be a streak, sort of a puritanical streak throughout, at least in the United States, probably in, in other countries, where the belief is that it's all cost and, and no benefit, right? The only benefit is fun, right? I mean, if you look at, yeah. for instance, drunk driving laws, I mean, drunk driving's horrible thing, right? We don't want that. But, you know, like reaching over and, and changing your CD and, and not paying attention could kill people. Falling asleep can kill people. And so if you take some activity which has a similar impact, we're not going to treat it quite the same because we really don't see any upside. And so in countries like Ireland, I think they're pushing the BAC down to like, I think it's like 0.0. There's no safe level for driving and drinking. Oh, wow. Okay. And under the belief that what could possibly offset saving a few lives, right? I mean, if you save one life, then that's good enough, right? What do you suppose accounts for this failure to appreciate the benefits? And I don't think you could attribute it to just like this mohistic tendency that people have because a good utilitarian is going to kind of think through all of the benefits, not just simply the health benefits, even if you're obsessed with productivity, I can see why you might support coffee and, and tobacco, but alcohol also contributes to at least a certain type of productivity. We've known that in kind of folklore. We know that artists associate with creativity and artists and innovation. And I think we know it at a folk level, but we haven't known it at an academic level, which means it doesn't enter into public policy considerations. I'm hoping the biggest impact of my book will be on public policy. Just because right now we have a purely medicalized view of alcohol. All we do is look at it from a medical perspective, in which case it's a bad case to make for alcohol, right? It's, it's almost all from a physiological perspective, almost all negative. The cholesterol stuff, there's a debate about that. It's almost certainly swamped by all the negative effects of alcohol. Everyone wants it to be good for your heart. So that's like it. I know, I know. It's, it's so desperate, right? We're just like... Right. The French paradox and all that stuff. You grasp it at straws. But people are so desperate because they're stuck within this medical paradigm. The solution is not to like inflate the importance of the cholesterol studies. It's to just get out of the medical paradigm and see that alcohol is a cultural technology that we've been using as long as we've been and so before we were in civilizations. As I say at one point, if the only benefit is fun, fun is going to lose because fun has no value for public policy making or very little value. Whereas if you see that, okay, maybe if we ban alcohol, we'll eliminate drunk driving, we'll lower liver damage, we'll lower cancer rates, domestic violence will probably go down. There'll be a lot of great benefits, but we'll be losing stuff. We'll be losing creativity. We'll be losing innovation. I discussed that study. It's correlational, but this great economist taking advantage of a natural experiment where prohibition got imposed at different times, the county level throughout the states. Many showed that when prohibition was imposed, innovation as measured by patent applications went down significantly, 15%, and took years to recover again. And he attributes that to the closing down of saloons. So people were meeting in saloons and exchanging ideas and coming up with new stuff. And then that was all public drinking was eliminated by prohibition. So you're losing innovation. You're losing the bonding that happens. Alcohol is a really important way of creating teams and getting people to work effectively together. 
And as I argued in the last chapter of the book, so I walked through all the dangers of alcohol in the last chapter, especially the fact that it's become more dangerous relatively recently. We're drinking, we have access now to distilled liquors, which are just wildly more powerful than the stuff we've been drinking for most of our history. Alcohol was always consumed socially. So all cultures have these very elaborate ritual customs for keeping drinking under control and helping people to drink in a moderate way. If you live in the United States and you can go to a drive through liquor store and they load up your SUV with a case of vodka and you can drive it back to your home and drink as much of it as you want, that's evolutionarily unprecedented and super dangerous. You know, we've seen like in pandemic lockdowns, problem drinking has gotten really out of hand. So there are all sorts of dangers to alcohol and we have to be aware of those and we need to learn to mitigate them. And it could be the case that we consider creativity, we consider innovation, we consider bonding. I could understand a policymaker going, okay, still no alcohol. Mm -hmm. But at least it would be an intelligent decision that's taking into account all the stuff that's being lost as well. I think right now, from a public policy perspective, we've been flying blind, but talking about the role, proper role of intoxicants in individual human lives, but also in institutions and in the public realm. I want the debate to be more intelligent in the sense of really understanding the functional benefits as well as the costs. Right. So what you just mentioned is bringing back that mismatch theory, right? So although we've adapted to the use of, of alcohol, right, it was presumably within a, a ritual context and it was not hyper powerful, right? So we're drinking wine and beer. We're doing it within social settings. There are norms around what is appropriate. You mentioned that in ancient Greece, there was someone who was in charge of the drinks, right? Kind of like the host or the bartender. In the law now, we have social host laws, which kind of make the, the host liable if things get out of hand. And, and that's sort of an extension of that idea. But still, I think your point is that the social norms that we have in, say, the United States are not a good fit for the availability of alcohol and that we really need to rethink this. And you mentioned as a parent, I don't know whether this is going to get you in trouble with the with the Mounties. Yeah, with the authorities. Yeah, the Mounties. I may have some Mounties showing up. But you mentioned that you would give your daughter a little bit of wine before her, her legal drinking age. So if we're trying to strike this balance, you can't just allow this to happen naturally. You have to be very conscious about balancing these things. You mentioned the importance of alcohol for anxiety reduction, and you referenced Freud. I was thinking about Freud when you were writing this, about civilization and its discontents and how civilization comes with it, all sorts of costs, and you can kind of mitigate some of those costs in some ways and make it a little bit less costly, but the poison's in the dose, right? And you have to yeah. be very careful about regulating how you utilize this potion. Yeah, so it's probably the case that cross-culturally, about 15% of the human population is vulnerable to a propensity genetically to alcoholism. Actual alcoholism rates vary wildly culture to culture. And so I do talk about the difference between Northern, so-called Northern and Southern European drinking cultures, where Northerners and the U.S. has inherited that Northern model. You drink a lot of distilled liquors, you drink to get drunk, you drink to just drink, like there's no meal involved. You're just getting together and drink. It's taboo for children. It's something only grown-ups do, and children aren't allowed to touch it. Public drunkenness is not only not shamed, but maybe it's even kind of celebrated, like it's a manly thing to be really drunk. That's a really unhealthy set of norms. It really leads to problem drinking very quickly. 
where Southern cultures drink primarily wine and beers, drinking is always happening in the context of a meal and a social situation. You typically don't drink away from the meal table. So it's all happening with everyone sitting around a table sharing alcohol together. Kids are introduced to alcohol at a very early age. You know, in Italy, which the culture I'm most familiar with, they get wine watered down when they're really young and then at a certain age they drink wine. And it seems to result in just a much healthier attitude towards alcohol. There's also kind of in Southern cultures, being publicly visibly drunk is stigmatized. There's something unmanly about being drunk. So if you see some, a drunk person wandering around Rome, it's a German tourist or American tourist. It's not a local. Cultures can do a lot to mitigate the dangers of alcohol. I have some kind of random policy recommendations, and one of them is paying bartenders and servers a real salary. Because I had this experience. I worked in the Bay Area. You know, for 10 years, I worked in the restaurant bar industry. And I was completely dependent on tips. This was late 90s. I was getting this alternate minimum wage. I was getting paid, I think, like a dollar eighty-five an hour because I was making all my money from tips. But that meant I was completely dependent on tips. And the way you make tips is to get people to drink more because it's high markup on alcohol, drunk people are more generous. And yet my job should have been to be like the Greek symposiarch. I should have been the one moderating people and they order another glass and I say, why don't you have bottle Pellegrino first? And if you still want a glass of wine later, I'll get you the wine. But I would never do that. Like I would lose my tip if I did that. You're putting people's economic self-interest against what they should be doing to help society out. And there's such a simple fix for that, which is just, as they do in Europe, pay waiters a real salary and not make them dependent on tips. If you're worried about drunk driving, that's the way to cut down drunk driving is give more power to bartenders and servers, right? Well, there's another nefarious practice. I worked in, in catering where you're catering a wedding, let's say, and you invoice for the number of bottles of wine that you sell and so you typically go and, and kind of top off everybody's glass yeah even waiters do this systematically they top and so my rule as a patron in a restaurant is i don't let the waiter touch the wine bottle because then you lose track of how much you're drinking and that's a really dangerous practice i think as well yeah there are policy things we could do to mitigate the cost but i think if we're going to think intelligently about the role alcohol is going to play in as individuals in our lives and the way we want it to play, the role it should play in our institutions. So we're at a university. Should alcohol have a role? Should we allow professors to hang out with their grad students at the pub and have a pitcher of beer after a seminar? There's not easy answers to these questions. We're really focused these days on all the costs and the dangers of letting that happen. But I think we've missed the positive sides. And so I just want us to see those as well. Well, I definitely, when I thought about being an academic, I thought it would be more like a David Lodge novel and it turned out not to be. And yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, even Einstein and von Neumann, they would always have drinks at five o'clock in Princeton. And I always remember that in Cambridge and Oxford, they always had the best wine at high table. I've yet to see that at Berkeley. Yeah, no, Berkeley, unfortunately, has not done that yet. Yeah. But when I think about the characters of Butcher Ding and Woodcarver Ching, who make an appearance in your book, Try Not to Try. They have this way, but it's hard for me to think of them performing better if they were consuming alcohol. Right. It's kind of way like a way of tapping into something very similar to what we can tap into. Is the cultivated spontaneity a form of drunkenness in a way? How should we be thinking about the relationship between the two books? 
it's a form of drunkenness without the motor impairment, without the side effects of alcohol. I mean, it's similar things going on when you're you're in a state of what Mihai Chicks and Mihai would call flow, right? You are engaged in your activity, you're like Butcher Ding or the woodcarver, completely absorbed in what you're doing. Part of what's going on is your PFC has been turned down. So in that sense, it's like drunkenness. But in other ways, it's not. And try not to try. I talked about that one neuroimaging study of where they managed to get jazz pianists in an fMRI machine and play, do solos or play pieces or... They have yet to do it with a butcher, I imagine. Yeah, it's harder. It's trickier to get the ox and the cleaver and everything in there. Cleavers and fMRI machines don't mix very well. But they found that the pattern of neural activity when they were successfully soloing, like when they reported that they were really in the zone soloing, was PFC activity down, but the ACC was still active. Mm -hmm. So the anterior cingulate cortex. And the ACC seems to work together with the PFC in kind of like an alarm sense, like when there's a mismatch between what you're doing in the environment or your system one program is running into obstacles, it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing, the ACC lights up and says, hey, PFC, come in here and fix this. We need a little top-down control. Their ACC is active. So that seems to correspond to the state. If you talk to people who have been in these states, it's not oblivion. When you're drunk, the ACC is not active, right? No, it's not. So, you know, you just power through. And if you're the Tesla, right, you just crash into the wall and there's no <laughs> alarm saying, hey, you know, wake up and grab the wheel, right? Yeah. So both are down-regulated with alcohol. Plus your motor coordination at high levels of inebriation is screwed. So you really don't want to be carving ox. But yeah, so there are different ways to get into states of spontaneity. And try not to try was about the non-chemical substance ways to do it. But this book is about another really promising shortcut, which is this chemical intoxicant technology that we humans have been using in all sorts of different forms for all of our history. So there's a role for chemically induced spontaneity, I think. So getting drunk on alcohol and getting drunk on heaven, are they substitutes or are they compliments, right? Presumably alcohol plays a huge role in religious ritual, right? Yeah, now they're compliments, which is why most religions use chemical intoxicants as well in their ceremonies. And yet you do have religions that don't use chemical intoxicants. And as I discussed in Drunk, they use other methods, right? So Pentecostals will have these long, really emotionally intense prayer sessions where they'll eventually start speaking in tongues or handling snakes or doing these things that are where they're, they seem drunk, right? And that's the early Bible account, the New Testament account of Jesus' followers. People thought they were drunk when they were possessed by the Holy Spirit. They're doing it through these other techniques. You can do it through singing and dancing. You can do it through sleep deprivation. You can do it through intense pain. So you can do it through self-mortification. Fire walking can get you into the state. So there are a whole host of these non-chemical ways to do it. And yet, they're all kind of a pain in the ass, like really time-consuming to do all these things, right? If you can instead have some alcohol or take a little ayahuasca, why not do that? So there's a good reason that chemical shortcuts to these states have been a go-to for a lot of cultures throughout history. Right. So when I was reading that book, I was trying to map it into some of the 
terminology that we know in cognitive psychology. And and you mentioned flow and you kind of compare it to flow and you talk about Butcher Ding is really in the flow when he's hacking op- open this ox. But flow as a state can apply to pushpin as well as poetry, right? I mean, it can be video games. I mean, video games have been designed so that they kind of tap into this state of flow, but you're not really, I don't think that any of the Confucians would say, hey, this, this is fantastic. Like you're up there in your room doing the video games all day. Way to be. Yeah. You can talk about flow-like states that are not flow. Because Chicks Me I wants to distinguish flow from zoning out to a TV show or watching stupid movies all day. In a state of flow, you emerge from it feeling good. Like you feel energized, you feel satisfied, you feel happy. There are some technologies that we use to get us out of our head where we emerge from them feeling enervated and dirty. You just binge watch whatever, some stupid TV show. You emerge not feeling very good about yourself. And I assume the same is with some sorts of video games. So why is that? And Chicks Me High thinks it has to do with complexity and challenge. And I just think that contradicts his own data. His own survey data shows that people are often experiencing flow in states that have nothing to do with complexity and challenge. So taking care of little kids, hanging around, talking to friends, taking a walk in the park, a path you've walked a hundred times or something complex about it. So I argue and try not to try what distinguishes the way or the good kind of flow states from vegging out in front of the TV is that sense of being absorbed in something that you care about. So walking in the park, playing with a child, weeding your garden, is not necessarily complex, but it puts you into contact with things that you value. Human relations, relationship with nature, certain type of beauty. That's what makes it satisfying and rewarding. So that would be the equivalent. Again, the Chinese would tell a theological story. It feels good because you've gotten in touch with the Tao. I don't believe in the Tao, but I think that the secular equivalent to that would be something larger than yourself that you value. And that's what makes these states satisfying. When you were describing, to tie it to another concept, I saw you describing kind of this state of someone walking through the world with this, what looks like effortless spontaneity. It made me think of sprezzatura, right? And the art of the courtier, but it's not quite the same, right? I think that there it's about looking as if you don't care. And would that be more like what the village poseur? (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly the village poser that Confucius was worried about. And it's exactly the guy at the bar who's using the rules, acting uninterested because that's rule number three or whatever to get a girl interested in you. It's trying to fake spontaneity, basically, to get the benefits of it. And typically, humans are able to see through that because they were pretty good cheater detectors or pretty good at reading emotions. But some people get away with it. And I think that people who are really good at it, like successful politicians and actors, seem to be able to pull it off by fooling themselves. They seem to have this knack for momentarily tricking themselves into thinking that they really do value the situation that they're in, even though they don't. But they can engage completely in a way that seems convincing to people because they've half convinced themselves. That seems to be one way around it that people use. But yeah, we don't like it. And we actually find it even in a way more aversive when someone's trying to fake spontaneity like the person who's trying to act cool. There's someone who's just kind of not cool, 
but at least if they're just not cool, it's okay. They're just not cool. But someone trying to act cool who's not cool is much worse, right? <laughs> There's something kind of disgusting about it. It's a bubble for us. Well, look, we're both educators and we both spend our time around younger people. I was going to say young people, but let's just say younger people. And (laughs) we're trying to help people achieve something and become better at something. And here at my business school, we have one of our mottos is confidence without attitude. And so I always see myself as like dialing one up and then dialing the other down. And we're trying to find that kind of sweet spot. And when you're teaching it at the university level, do you feel like you have to emphasize the kind of carve and polish side of things and whack your students with sticks and get them to take things seriously? Or do you think that you have to kind of steer them away from the hedonic treadmill and get them to kind of let things go a little bit? If you have this dial inspired by Chinese philosophy, we as a society, I think I can see both criticisms as landing squarely in our culture. Our culture is both on the one hand full of hippie-like folks that don't take things seriously and others that are really, really working too hard at self-cultivation. Yeah. If I have to err on one side, I try to cultivate more the love. Why is this cool? Why is this fun? Why is this relevant to your life, but in a way that you hadn't, wouldn't have thought of on your own? I've been fighting against the exoticizing of China as if it's some radical other way of thinking. But there's a reason we study it, because it's actually more helpful in many ways than some of the Western models that we've inherited. But at the same time, the stick is useful too, because in a way that helps students to help themselves. I teach a flipped version of my early China course where the students have to keep up with the lectures on their own at home because they're video lectures. And so I have weekly quizzes, and that's a very Han Fadesian legalist stick. <laughs> it's very enlightenment, top down, but it's in a way in the service of getting them to be able to enjoy it because if they were so behind and trying to catch up last minute, they're not going to have the background material to be able to talk in a way that would be like Butcher Ding really cutting up the ox instead of some completely untrained butcher hacking away. They're not going to enjoy the discussion section unless they have some basis on which to discuss, unless they know the material. So I use some Han Fadesian techniques to get them to be able to be Taoists when they get into the classroom, basically. Well, Edward, this is fascinating. I think we could talk for a lot longer. Maybe if we had a few cocktails, we could talk even longer. But I recommend to everybody that they check out Drunk, really wonderful book. Also, trying not to try. I mean, this is fantastic. And it really made me want to read a lot more about the philosophers you reference. In particular, Mencius is now my new favorite philosopher. <laughs> for I have to dig deep into him. But also, you have this edX course, which is available to anybody on Chinese philosophy, which I recommend to everybody. Thanks so much, Edward, for joining me. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun.